You are with the Jet Set Breakfast, and at this time on a Sunday, we introduce our guest presenter. As I mentioned, a CV as long as my arm and probably longer. She was a maths and science teacher. She was a black belt, karate. She worked for the National Union of Textile Workers and a variety of other workers' uh, unions as well. She was an adjunct fellow at the Simone de Beauvoir Institute in Canada. I mention that because I'm a big fan of the author Simone de Beauvoir. She was also a gender coordinator working for StreetNet Association. And finally, to this day, she is now the um, the collective bargaining project coordinator of coordinator of WIRGO, Women in Informal Employment, Globalising and Organising. Pat Horn, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be on your show today. Pat, we were intrigued by your first choice of songs, so I'm going to start soft before we get to the nitty-gritty, as they say. Lucy Jordan by Marion Faithful. What a great song that takes us back. But man, it's a song that uh, holds weight. Tell us about your personal love for it. Well, um, I actually was fortunate enough to uh, see Marion Faithful live in Montreal during the time that I was at the Simone de Beauvoir Institute. And um, I really liked all of her songs. Um, but this one also resonated a bit. Uh, at one stage in my life, um, I got divorced and um, experienced the divorce as something quite liberating. And this song of hers is a bit like that. Not that I was the same kind of person as Marion, as Lucy Jordan, because I didn't uh, ever have a flower arranging phase. <laughs> but um, I had many friends who this who this applied to, and I think uh, it was it was part of personal liberation. Um, and I really like uh, Marion Faithfull's voice and her singing and so on. You know, it's so funny that you say, I never had a flower arranging phase. I want to say to you, so what phases did you have? I mean, when I read uh, the information about you, I can, and I'm just going to, I'm just dropping pins in. Um, a banning order, joined the Marxist reading group to study Das Kapital, uh, radical feminists, uh, the comparative status of women in societies. That is not flower arranging for sure. <laughs> yes, um, I went to WITS in 1970 and uh, got immediately involved in student politics. And that's also when I became a, a feminist. Um, there were some very heavy duty feminists at WITS at the time who I you know, I absolutely worshipped them. I thought it was this is quite amazing. I'd never really heard about women's liberation before or thought about it. But um, I think it was an anti-establishment phase. And um, uh, after that, I did the kind of things that uh, were a, a way of, um, well, working at opposing the establishment, I would say. Firstly, maybe in a kind of a radical student politics way. And then, um, as things went on, uh, started to read Marx. Actually, um, when I was banned by the government in 1976, um, the Minister of Justice, uh, you know, banned a whole lot of us because, in his opinion, we were furthering the aims of communism. Actually, I wasn't a communist yet, but um, when I got banned, I had time to sit and reflect because I wasn't allowed to do most of the things that I'd started to do. And uh, so by the end of the five years, then I was a communist. So the, so the, the, the apartheid government helped me to, to become one. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, feminism, which was another part of anti-establishment mm. uh, work, was, was part of what I was exposed to from being in this. So I was always uh, committed not to just be an ordinary housewife. In fact, I was quite determined not to get married. Uh, I did end up getting married for a while, but I didn't remain married for that long. Um, and uh, so, so I didn't. Uh, and, and the person I married didn't expect me to to be like that either. So, um, uh, but it's still, I suppose, um, you know, when one goes through a divorce, it's a really painful uh, thing to go through, and um, and you uh, sometimes reflect on how how did you find yourself to be in that situation where you um, maybe you know volunteered to to get involved in certain uh, ways of life but afterwards you think you know what on earth made me do that and uh, you know I, I even wrote some poetry in, in, on, in those days I'm not really a poet but along those lines and um, my feminism went much more into then you know working with women workers afterwards yeah. and uh, that seemed to be, you know, of course, there's, there's, uh, we, as feminists believe that the personal is political, so you can't just uh, go and work with, with, with women in, in, in other organizations and not apply to yourself. So, um, you know, there, was, there were both elements uh, to, to the nature of Talk to particular us. feminism. Talk to us about, I mean, as you say, that, that the, here was an interest in feminism, but also an interest in women, and what what really happened was you you worked your way through quite a few unions and you were you were established the self-employed women's union before that you were with the textile workers union which of course is a fascinating conversation in its own right um the you worked for the paperwood and allied workers union um fasatu just talk to us a little bit about the role of women in those spaces as well Actually, the textile union wasn't the main union I worked in. I, I worked with that union uh, for about um, a year or even less yeah. before I was banned in, in 1976. And when I came out of my banning order in 81, I, I had a number of offers from different unions because I had decided uh, to go straight back into the unions to, to show the apartheid government they weren't going to um, uh, get me out that easily. And I didn't go back into that union. I went back into the Paperwood and Allied mm. Workers Union. And then in uh, 85, just after my son was born, I um, shifted to the Chemical Workers Industrial Union. And those two unions were very male-dominated unions. So I had a very good working relationship with, with, with all the men in the unions, too. I had lots of arguments uh, with my male counterparts. Uh, you know about uh, women's equality issues, and because we were in the unions, of course, we we had very robust uh, debates about this. But um, uh, started to become very conscious that the majority of women in the labour market were not even in unions because they were doing kinds of work that wasn't really unionised. And mm. um, uh, so, in the in the, uh, the the chemical union where I was in the second half of the 80s after Kasatu was formed, we had a, a Kasatu sort of women's group, and so we used to get together with with women from the different unions, and uh, we were starting to look at the issue of um, you know we had fought very hard for worker rights and we were getting somewhere, and we were now paying more attention to the issue of women workers' rights. 
And we were making progress. We signed some of the first um, uh, maternity agreements in those days. Hmm. Uh, even though we as union organizers didn't have you know, maternity leave yet, but we fought for it so that those who followed us uh, do have it. Um, and uh, it, 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 it struck me that even all the women that we work with in these unions, there's all those women who, who are not in the kinds of work that, that is unionized. And while I was mulling about that generally and trying to you know, think what one should do about that, I, I went on the sabbatical in um, Montreal and was accepted at the Simon de Beauvoir Institute and then did a bit of reading about what happened with the rights okay. of women. Pat, I've uh, just, I've, I'm, I'm going to pause you. Change. I'm going to pause you for a moment. We have to go to a break. I've been told. When we come back, we'll come back to you. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown. Our guest today is Pat Horn. She's currently the Collective Bargaining Project Coordinator for WIGO, Women in Informal Employment, Globalising and Organising. And there's so much to talk to her about the informal sector as well, and certainly her guests uh, will address a lot of that as well. Pat, uh, it's, it's been amiss of me or remiss of me. And the thing that's remiss of me is that you've mentioned your, your, your five-year banning order. So I'm taking our conversation back a little bit. And I suddenly thought, as I was listening to you talk now, that if I was 14 years old, I would have no idea what a banning order was. Because obviously we don't have that in a democratic South Africa. What is a five-year banning order? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of something which is... Uh, uh, a relic of history now because we don't really have that anymore. But um, uh, in the 1950s, the government passed the Suppression of Communism Act, and it was basically to help them to deal with the, the communists. Uh, but after a while, everybody who was anti-apartheid was called a communist, and so the, uh, many people got banned or banished even. So um, there was different uh, grades of banning order. The one I had was a rather lightweight one. It was just um, having to stay in your magisterial district, report to the police once a week, not being allowed to talk to more than one other person at a time, uh, not being allowed to work in trade unions or in uh, educational institutions. Uh, there was, it was like a 10-page document that you had to apply, uh, comply with, and if you didn't, then you could be arrested hmm. uh, for not complying with it. But some people, you know, had house arrest as part of those conditions, which in my case I didn't have. So many people were house arrested for periods of anything from three hours a day to um, to, to 21 hours a day, or uh, other people were banished uh, to completely different magisterial districts. My kids were rather um, annoyed with me because, you know, on the day that it expired, I was so pleased that I sort of jumped up and down on it and burnt it. And now they're annoyed because they can't see what it looks like. And, and uh, I, I suppose, you know, it would have been, if I'd been thinking ahead, I would have kept it for them to look Framed at. it. <laughs> um, but, uh, it, you know, the government uh, did that at the time. They were scared of the increasing power of trade unions. So I was among a group of about 27 trade unions all around the country, Cape Town, Durban, and Joburg, who, who were banned. Um, it wasn't successful. It didn't kill the power of the trade union. So when ours uh, came to an end at the end of five years, we, you know, we stopped being banned. Whereas earlier with the communists, they would be sometimes banned for successive periods for, you know, more than ten years. 
So it was used as an attempt to uh, deal with, with political opposition and, and resistance, mainly to apartheid. Pat, I'm going to spin the dial and take you forward again, and I'm going to take you past the unions to um, the creation of um, StreetNet International. And what, of course, is interesting about that is that within the unions, the focus is on um, formal engagement, formal benefits, etc. Then we look at StreetNet International, and also WeGo, which is where you currently work as well, is the informal trading environment. And the challenges for women in those spaces right now. Um, what was the decision to move into that sector? Well, I actually had to leave my job in the chemical union, which I really enjoyed because I had two small children and I wasn't seeing them because I would leave home before they were awake and I would get home when they were um, you know, when they were already asleep, and and I realised that having decided to have children, I couldn't really, I shouldn't, really, I shouldn't be doing that. And um, I was very impressed by a movie by Sean Slovo called A World Apart, where she wrote about their childhood and and how it impacted on them having parents who were politically involved. So I had actually um, uh, reluctantly left my job in the chemical union, and um, and and. Um, I had read about Sarah, the Self-Employed Women's Union, yeah. while I was in uh, the Simone de Beauvoir Institute, and I realized for the first time in my life that it's not impossible to organize uh, workers in the informal economy, as Sarah had done, and um, I was very inspired by that, in fact, and I managed to uh, to raise some funds when I was setting up the Self-Employed Women's Union to actually go to India and work with the organizing department of the Self-Employed Women's Association. And what I found there was something that married these two different issues, the issues of workers organizing, because the organizing of informal workers in, in India was similarly done to the way we did it in the Fasatu and Kasatu unions, but also focusing on women workers and on sectors where women predominate. And so this is what made me, um, I actually used a lot of the skills that I'd learned in the trade unions um, uh, when I then started to organize um, women street traders firstly and then afterwards home-based workers. And because I had met the self-employed women's union, the, the founder, Ila Butt, uh, found out that I was training somebody to replace me as the general secretary of the self-employed women's union and she said that I shouldn't leave what she called the movement. So I was then approached by Self-Employed Women's Association of India to take on the task of starting an international organization, StreetNet International, um, to to give a one voice to street traders' organizations all around the world. And that was how the idea for StreetNet um, came up and how I ended up um, doing that. Using my experience of building up unions in the 70s and then building the self-employed women's union in, in, in the 90s, yeah. uh, from 99 we started to uh, build StreetNet. Pat, we do have to go into the sports, but very briefly I want to ask you, one of the things that struck me when I first heard you speak, which was at an Indulamiti Scenarios um, webinar, was... You spoke about um, the informal sector and you eschewed the concept of the second economy. Now, you never explained why the second economy is not the space that we're going into. I wonder if briefly if you could talk about that. 
It's a terminology um, thing. Um, well, you know, once you start working in the informal economy, you find there's lots and lots of misunderstandings about it. Mm. And there's, there's lots of, um, in, in, in the society at large, a lot of the misunderstandings are, are misunderstandings whereby the informal economy is kind of like the other. And we don't recognize all of those people that are in the informal economy. And this idea of the second economy um, reinforces that idea that there's this other, there's this inferior part. But in truth, um, one of the things I did manage to do was to complete a UNISA degree in, um, in economics. And actually, there's just one economy, and it's, it's got formal and informal parts to it. Okay. And those people that work in the informalized part of the economy um, are they they are workers and uh, when one organizes the workers there, then it's not comfortable to be thinking of everybody that you're working with as just an, an other somehow. And um, so there's been some work done by the International Labour Organization to to really get some sort of a general international consensus on how we should understand the informal economy. Because basically, and the way that the ILO defines it is, um, so the workers in the informal economy, or the economic units, which means the, the cooperatives, the yeah. SNMEs, all the actual units, they, they, are, um, they are workers or economic units who are either not covered or insufficiently covered by laws and policies, which means they lack protection. But it doesn't mean that they're not a part of the economy as a whole, and there's a certain contribution that can be measured even. And this organization, WeGo, that I'm working with now, has a, a very important statistical department where they actually develop the ability to collect um, statistics on the informal economy, which before, one of the reasons it was called informal is that nobody knew anything about it, they didn't have statistics about it, and one of the reasons for the marginalization of the people that are in the informal economy, and you know, in sectors like the street trade sector, a majority of them are women, sort of uh, further um, you know, marginalizing them in society, in the mm. economy, and everything else. So, so um, you know, we've been uh, participating in the ILO processes of, of getting better definition yeah. to what it is that we're talking about. So, Pat, essentially what we're saying is we don't talk about the secondary economy because it is an othering as opposed to one economy with different sectors. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown. It's 20 to 10. Our guest presenter is none other than Pat Horn. She's the collective bargaining project coordinator of WeGo, uh, which is Women in Informal Employment, Globalizing and Organizing. And uh, we've certainly had an interesting conversation around uh, where we shift and how we shift in terms of the way we think about the informal sector and women, particularly in that sector. Pat, we, your first guest is none other than the coordinator and founder of the Joburg Informal Traders Platform, which is JITP, Ms. Lulama Mali. Lulama, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, we, we, we may, Pat, we may have a problem with Lulama. We, we're trying to get her on the line. But what I will ask you is that I read this, I think it was on Weirgo, I read this really interesting uh, series of documentations around the impact of COVID-19 on people who are working 
and ultimately living in informal settlements and in the informal sector. I imagine that this is something that you're having to focus on quite a bit at the moment. Yes. Um, are you talking to me now? Yes, or I'm to- yeah, no, I'm talking to you. We're just trying uh, to get hold of Lilam at the moment. Okay. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, people in the informal economy lost their, uh, their, their, their livelihoods overnight. Yeah. And um, there, there's no social protection for them. So um, uh, in Uigo, we, we put forward an appeal um, to, to the uh, command council to um, open up uh, for uh, informal traders in the food trade uh, to get back to work, yes. at least in the early days. And fortunately, we were heard. Um, during this COVID time, we seem to be heard more than used to happen before. And so it was recognized that it was an advantage for uh, informal uh, tra- food traders to go back to work, so partly to reduce the queues in, in the supermarkets. And since then, we've been um, working with the government, uh, with the Command Council and the Rapid Response Task Team in NEDLAC, yeah. to get progressively different workers in the informal economy back to work. Um, we've also tried to you know, get a, a basic income grant, and yes. after some time, this uh, grant of 350 rand a month was agreed, but as you can imagine, it's really small. Yeah. So most workers in the informal economy prefer to get back at work, to work if they can at all. So we've been very busy on those issues and since the beginning of the lockdown. Pat, we do have Lulama on the line, the coordinator and founder of the Joburg Informal Traders Platform. Why have you chosen Lulama, I mean, it's pretty obvious actually, uh, as your first guest? Well, you know, Lulama has achieved something that nobody else managed to achieve. Uh, in StreetNet, we managed to set up a national street traders alliance called CITA uh, to give one voice to all traders. But even then, in Joburg, the street traders organizations were not on the same page. And Lulama is the person who managed to put them all together into the Joburg Informal Traders Platform. And even though there are some organizations that say they don't belong, she's got a very inclusive way of working. And she's been able to uh, create the space uh, for the Joburg traders to, to have one voice. And uh, I'm extraordinarily in, in awe of what she managed to do there. Lulama, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, madam. I'm definitely not a madam, but thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Lulama. Thank you. Thanks um, for joining you, yes. I, I wonder if you could talk to us. I mean, I think Pat has very clearly stated the, the importance of organization and yes. organizing people. Um, well, across the board, but particularly in the informal sector as well. How difficult yes. was how difficult was that for you? It was very, very, very difficult. I had to persuade. I had to convince. Uh, I, I had to push, but not hard, but to 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 make sense to the leaders, because there are many organisations in the sector. Out of ten organiz- out of eleven organizations that I approached, I managed to convince seven out of eleven. Wow. Before that I could not convince the our organizations that are led by people who are not informal traders. So the seven that I, I managed to go through to work with are organizations that are led by traders in the street. By so saying I mean that. 
there are organizations of informal traders which are led by people who are not informal traders. Mm. So the interest differs. Yeah. That's why the four could not be on board. Otherwise, we wanted, I wanted us to work as a one unit. But unfortunately, the four came to the meeting at first when I invited them. They came and we discussed and I told them the reason why. Because whenever we approach any department, whenever we approach anywhere where we go, we are, we are always told about not talking with one voice. That's what I, I, I tried to do, that we have to go to wherever we go with one voice. So these four listened on that day, but unfortunately, they could not come the next meeting. They just pulled out. Well, Lulama, I have to say, I listened to you talking about um, organizing and talking with one voice. And I have to say there are many sectors, whether it's the informal or formal sector, who could uh, learn from you and take a page from your book. Lulama, perhaps for our listeners, you could talk about what does it mean? What are some of the challenges that you have to address as an informal trader? The challenges that we have to, to, to address as informal traders is the scale of doing the trading. We are not doing things the, the way that we're supposed to, be, to do, like business people. So I wanted us to approach the Department of Economic Development and any other department that may be interested to assist, to, to, to uplift the skill of the sector, of the traders. So that they know that if you are in business, it's not about taking from mouth to hand. It's about mm. saving and growing in business. The second thing I wanted to, to achieve was to, what do you call it? We wanted to turn the sector around. We wanted to change the things in the informal sector, to grow in business, to grow in mind. So that at the end of the day, we would be formal businesses. It was about transition of the sector. And that was after we were informed by Tetron and Jane Barrett, the people who are working with. By then, Tetron was at Streetnet and Jane Barrett was at WICO. So they introduced what they called R204, and it was interesting for traders to know because R204 was about changing the lives of the informal sector because in the document there is social protection, which is about to engage to comply with labor departments, which is about to have something if you get sick, even if you die, even if you go to maternity leave, we have to comply with labor Okay, Lilama, I, I need you to, uh, I need you to move around a little bit. Your line is um, getting a little unclear. Uh, I, I suppose. Let me push it. Let me just problem with my phone is in the and I thought I it last night. Yet I did not. Okay. So let me leave, move away from the charger. Yes. No worries. Lilama Mali, founder of the Joburg Informal Traders Platform. Uh, Pat, we listened to Lulama talk, and one of the, the challenges that I imagine that is not really mentioned here is 
and you've highlighted in a way is the idea of being an informal trader but also being a woman and and the kind of safety uh, and security issues around that. Yes. Um, in fact, um, informal traders, what, what struck me when I started to work with informal traders in the 90s already is that um, there are a lot of very tough women like Ilana Hmm. who have to um, kind of put their safety second in order to earn livelihoods for their families. Because um, most, of, most of these informal traders, um, of, of whom in South Africa about 60% are, are women, um, many of them are heads of their households economically, even if uh, physically speaking there might be a man heading their household although many of them are actually um, single mothers and so on. And what I noticed is that the women in the sector don't spend much time looking after their safety because they, they've put earning the livelihood of their families first. I, I'm in awe of that. But, yeah. of course, they deserve safety and they deserve uh, social protection. Um, and this is why we work with the International Labour Organization. This R204 that she talked about is the ILO Recommendation 204 on transitions from the informal to the formal economy in order to formalize the working conditions of people in the sector, including access to social protection. You know, I'm, I'm interested in the idea of uh, the potential of technology in these kinds of spaces. Um, there's a lady down the road from me who uh, sells fabric uh, work on, on the side of the road. But she has, I think it's SnapScan or something like that. And I just thought, what a brilliant thing that technology is a way for her to power up. And ultimately, she never has to really work with, with, with physical money at all. Well, you know, uh, it's very interesting. I've been taught a lot about how to use this technology by the people in the informal economy that I work with. Brilliant. Uh, you know, there was a time when a, a cell phone was like a bourgeois thing to have. but uh, And I, it took a very long time to agree to have a cell phone. I was one of those dinosaurs until my children gave me one. But then I started to notice that the people in the sector started to use cell phones because it was an easier way for them to do their ordering and their stocking. Instead of having to go to people that were not in and, and waste time and so on. And then I noticed that they also start and they also started to use um, uh, cell phone banking. Yes. And long before, you know, I was still doing it on my laptop. Long before I learned to use that app. So w- as technology is coming in, interestingly, um, the people in the informal economy um, uh, are usually very agile. They usually respond very well to opening up opportunities. That's one of the strengths mm. of yeah. the informal economy. And um, and so there's a lot of opportunity, and particularly for the younger people in the informal economy who learn even faster than we do at our age. Um, and uh, one of the problems is that when the new technology comes in and people start to, and it, it creates work, um, sometimes it gets regulated uh, to be hmm. illegalized, and in, in other words, to be informalized. And, you know, we're trying to persuade the policymakers that instead of informalizing something that actually is is the new kinds of work which is coming up, um, and it's like the new informal, it shouldn't be the new informal because there's no reason for it to be. Maybe the regulations need to be re-looked at. 
And that's another whole long story on how to use the opportunities coming up with the fourth industrial revolution. But informal workers are very agile. And when I was in Kenya, I was particularly struck by the way in which the workers in the informal economy use the technology. The M-Pesa finance system is highly developed there, Mm, much more than anything we have here. So, Pat, um, your second guest is Ava Mukwena, the chairperson of the African Reclaimers Organization, ARO, and also a council member of the national organization, which is the South African Waste Pickers Association. Um, Ava, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, Why Ava, Pat? Well, um, uh, I started to come in touch with uh, Waste Pickers in Brazil in 2008 and went around, had the chance for two months to go around the country visiting Waste Pickers cooperatives in Brazil and was very impressed by the nature of the work where, where people do the kind of work which society often looks down on. But it's amazingly important work. Because there's a link between the work they do and preserving the environment and slowing down climate change. And I was really delighted when when the uh, organization of waste pickers took off in South Africa. And Eva is one of those leaders in the sector. She's the chairperson both of ARO, the African Reclaimers Organization, and the national one. And so I've been very privileged to be able to work more with her as the organization of uh, reclaimers or waste pickers in South Africa has taken off. And I really wanted uh, your listeners to hear about the work that she does today. Eva, thank you so much for joining us. Pat, thank you so much for making the introduction. Eva, tell us briefly about the work that you do, as Pat says. Hi, everyone. I'm Eva Mokwena, chairperson of which is and a national coordinator in Gauteng of Saoba, which is South African Mystical Association. Uh, the work that I'm doing, I started at an early age of 11 years. I was following my mom. Back then, it was not something that was recognized, or even it was just a thing just to make money to come and buy food for the kids, or just for the kids to go to school without an empty stomach. Uh, I've learned a lot from the work to be independent. That was the first thing that I've learned from this work that I'm doing. And to stand and fight for it so that it can be recognized. Because I've noticed that ever since reclaimers always because doing both. The government is aiming so much without even them being recognized, without even them being the, 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 the rightful owners of this work. It has saved airspaces, it has saved more companies, it has put most people in universities, but even though that work cannot be recognized. You know, Eva, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, starting at 11 years. Wow. Yes, at 11 years, following my mom. It leaves me, it leaves me actually silenced. Eva, if we look at um, the work that you're doing, are you seeing change? Because essentially it's, it goes back to what we were talking to Lulama about as well, is the organization of the sector. Uh, are you seeing change? 
to tell the truth, um, we've been like back and forth with the city of Joburg. Although yes, we've done the guidelines for the waste pickers or reclaimers on how to work with those people, but the result said that the government doesn't want to take the step of responsible of being the step of being responsible for everything that reclaimers or waste pickers are doing. Yes, there is a change, but it's a small one because they are still separating us in different ways. Like in this sector that I am, 70% are non-South African. Some, they don't even have documents. Then 30% are the ones that are, are, are South African. So our government doesn't want to go recognize us as one. It's people like selecting these ones, they are from South Africa, these ones are from South Africa. Although the work that we're doing, it doesn't say when you go to your biotech center and say, nah, give, give me your ID so that I can see whether you are a South African or you are white. The industry is making enough money through that 70% of the people that our government doesn't want to recognize. So, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm think I'm going to have to hand Pat to you on that particular one because we are nearly closing off. But the challenge I think that uh, Eva's raising is an interesting one and it raises the issue of the fact that the informal sector talks so much to um, migrancy, refugee, uh, refugees as well. Yes, um, in fact, there are quite a few uh, parts of the informal economy because well, refugees um, are—they're uh, allowed to work in South Africa, but they obviously can't get hired in jobs because mm. there's normally a, a, a prioritisation of South Africans. So you'll get a, um, a disproportionate number of workers in the informal economy um, uh, from uh, other countries. Um, compared to the the formal um, uh, economy. Mm. Um, And uh, the more the sector is belittled and looked down on, often the more you'll find foreign nationals in those sectors. Another sector like that is car guards. Um, But interestingly, in the organizations of workers in the informal economy, where they've been organized, uh, they have actually not... They have... have, um, they have integrated uh, South Africans and non-South Africans into the same organization. So unlike in the sector of spaza shops where there's been quite a lot of competition between South Africans and non-South Africans, um, in sectors like uh, street trade and uh, waste picking and car guards and so on, there's been much more integration um, on the ground. And it's been quite uh, admirable, actually, um, and, you know, because w- when there's competition in, in these sectors where people earn so little anyway, it's really, um, it's fatal. So that's, that's um, I think that that level of integration is is, um, is really admirable. And it's something that uh, could actually help the authorities to see how to do it better uh, than, than this attempt to, to drive wedges between people where these wedges are not necessarily automatically coming from uh, organized people in those sectors. Pat, we have 30 seconds to close. And, I mean, I could ask you anything. (laughs) But I suppose my question is, what is your vision of the future? 
Uh, well, you know, I like to think that um, uh, out of the crisis we're in at the moment, we're going to build uh, a better future. Um, as you saw in my CV, I, I'm a socialist, and I hope that we're looking towards a, a future that has more uh, elements of socialism in it. So I, 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 I'm hoping that in the economic recovery that we're working towards now, and this is certainly what we're trying to do, we're looking at a more inclusive um, future, at something which has some basic income support for everybody in the informal economy, because those people that are in the informal economy now are busy being joined by people that used to be in the formal economy as they're losing jobs. And so the, the, the new uh, um, uh, recovered economy that we need to move into needs to be a highly inclusive one, which leaves no one behind, as we say. And it also needs to be one where the organizations of workers in the informal economy are at the negotiating table negotiating for themselves. They have the slogan, nothing for us without us. Um, and, you know, this is what I would like to see um, in the future. And I think it's possible, especially with strong leaders like two of the women that you've heard this morning on the show and others. Pat Horn, she's the Collective Bargaining Project Coordinator of We Go Women in Informal Employment, Globalising and Organising.